In the summer of 2016, I contracted Lyme disease and was treated for it, but had lingering symptoms. It continued to worsen throughout the following school year, but I tried to push through. By the fall of 2017, my symptoms were bad enough that I couldn't go back to school, despite being one semester away from finishing my thesis project and graduating. That winter, I was diagnosed with ME-CFS. Since then, I've gotten progressively worse. Now, I am severely ill. I am bedbound, and I cannot even listen to music, let alone play guitar. I'm in intense pain and suffer bouts of being in a catatonic state, sometimes unable to speak or even turn over in bed. Before becoming sick, I was looking forward to the rest of my life. Soon, I would graduate and pursue what I loved most, creating music and art. Now I am unlikely to ever get a chance to do those things unless something drastically changes, as currently most people with severe ME never fully recover. Contra cliche, this illness hasn't given me strength or taught me anything valuable besides that things can always be worse and that there are infinite shades of pain. Many people consider this illness to be not as serious as others because it is often not terminal. But this is not living, it's a living death. I mean, just the crazy thing about like getting sick like that with no real hope from doctors and no prior um, like idea of chronic illness or like conception of it is that I just kind of got into like magical thinking about it, like. Uh, Almost because, like, the magical thinking seems, like, more plausible than no one had given me any, like, rational explanation. Like, I went through a period of just thinking I had literally been cursed um, by someone, you know, like, maybe, like, someone that had had a bad relationship with or, or someone that would want to, like, harm me um like i i just thought that because it just it just like kind of didn't make sense that i would just be cognitively and physically falling apart and yet like you know going to doctors and them saying well whatever like all your labs are fine that's just that's part of like besides cycling through what if this is psychological what if this is just stress you know i would even go as far as to look for like explanations like that um because it was really like surreal um experience um and it and i even to this day i sometimes like lapse into that like i'm very much um I don't know, basically like lean towards being an atheist, but sometimes it's just like 
I don't know, like, could my luck really be this bad? Like, the idea of some kind of malevolent force um, seems more plausible than just, like, randomness as an explanation. Yeah, at least with, like, a demon, there's there's some malevolent actor who is is maybe conscious and working against you as opposed to some combination of <clears throat> factors that are basically invisible and not able to be pinpointed anywhere or with anybody's agency. I mean, and then that brings me to thinking like what I came to think is like of as causal factors behind all of this, like um, you put them in aggregate, you could almost think of all of it as like a uh, Moloch or something like I would probably be like embarrassed to admit that I like read a, a Slate Star Codex post and really liked it like a few years ago. But um, I honestly thought the one on Moloch was really good because he talks about like breaks down maybe one of the few good Ginsburg poems um, and talks about how like Moloch isn't just capitalism. That doesn't make sense. It's like portrayed as agential but also like huge and encompassing like some kind of teleology of late capitalist industrialism not just capitalism i mean and also that talking about the system as an agent throws into relief the extent to which there is no agent single agent driving the system or something but in a way that's almost like that's almost like dark matter or something like with all of the systems we have there's some kind of malevolent force but it's more of like a malevolent uh force of absence or just everything is sort of like hollow and sucked into it or something like some kind of helos that's like your uh kind of passive nihilism that drives every system um well i kind of went on a tangent there but what i was trying to say is like like when you just go through stuff like that this it kind of breaks your brain like almost Mm -hmm. semi-permanently i mean to me it's like and i haven't even gotten into the parts of the story that are like the worst but even even just like the first year of being at school and being moderately ill or mild what what is considered mildly ill in on the scale of like uh mecfs um was still like just mind destroying kind of like um especially when i'm just when i felt like i was like around people who are well-meaning but still didn't get it because i also didn't get it enough to articulate anything about it but I was just like I'm really messed up and everyone's like I'm you know I'm messed up too I have problems but it's like it's like I didn't not to diminish someone else's problem but it's not like I mean I've dealt with mental health issues in the past I wouldn't draw a hard line between them because they're also organic but like depression is like a known entity and angst over lots of things are like known entities that people know how to deal with on some level and what I was going through kind of wasn't so um but 
so yeah, so I, you know, I had left school, blah, blah, blah. We're talking about summer 2018 after I'd gotten a diagnosis um, of ME-CFS and um, gone to a doctor for this and tried some treatments that so far weren't helping. And in the meantime, I was just like spending all of my time on forums and just like kind of desperately and hopefully reading research. I like tried to read up on biochemistry. Um, I like learned that there were serious scientists invested in this, but there's also this political and scientific debate like that these um, scientists in the United, these psychiatrists um, in the United Kingdom had tried to make this standard of care based on their study, like based on essentially a single study that this was a psychosomatic illness that could be treated with cognitive behavioral therapy and graded exercise and then you know reading all of the pretty in-depth criticism of that study and seeing how essentially there was all of this like weird kind of political turmoil over um an illness that wasn't just like a neat scientific debate i mean it was criticized but also it seemed like the scientific debate had kind of been won in uh, an extent that the consensus was moving toward this is a biological illness probably having to do with um metabolic and inflammatory and immune system issues um it and like the cdc had reversed had changed their recommendations away from um, graded exercise therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy because of criticism of that study, um, which I could get into later. But basically, I was learning that there's this kind of horrifying amount of kind of uphill battles people are fighting to get even like basic research done and to get standards of care, which didn't like actively harm them. Like in the UK, I'm pretty sure the standard of care based on that study um, that has still never been retracted is tied to like whether you get welfare benefits or disability benefits. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's not like just this, oh, well, you can opt out. Like it's like I was discovering that there's, you know, that you can have. Um, stuff published in a major journal that is incredibly flawed science, but if you're just like from Oxford and have connections, um, and if it serves some kind of politically motivated or financial motivation of um, someone like wanting to reduce disability payouts or something, it's almost like impossible for your patient to get change anything about and it's not like the science itself but I was just like trying to be very optimistic and focus on my own case despite all of that and just like do it try and learn about like every detail of the disease read current research and even like learn about 
basic biochemistry at the same time, although um, I didn't have like a ton of energy for reading, but at that point I was a lot better off than I am now, and I could read some. I got like biochemistry textbooks. I had like a, a Pathways of Cellular Respiration poster on my wall that I almost kind of thought, you know, um, if I just look at this every day, I'll start to like get it. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it seemed like a lot of compelling research that this is some kind of like metabolic disease. Although now like in retrospect, I think some of that is more of like downstream effects, but it, and so anyway, it led me to experiment with like certain supplements based on like uh, metabolomic research on what things are low and high in patients' blood and etc. But um, in addition to what the doctor was telling me, um, but I kind of just had to stay like I'm looking at research to have any hope because the MECFS doctor I went to was like, I mean, happy to try stuff, but was kind of blunt about this is an illness with no known cure. And I just like literally couldn't accept that. So that's, I, I kind of was splitting my time between just like looking at research all day and that point in time listening to a lot of music uh audiobooks podcasts that sort of helped me stay sane so my capacity for listening was very high and I basically like my capacity for sustained reading was a little lower so I basically um, sometimes just like read didn't read a lot of books during the whole time I was ill I think like I, I think probably I, I couldn't read a full in 2018 and it and later I couldn't read like a full uh, novel or book period, but I could still like read scientific studies without like it being too difficult, read like paragraphs here and there. I guess I, I think I um sort of between the audiobook and actually reading um, text, kind of combining both, I read all of genealogy of morals um so i had a lot of capacity for listening to music it's uh less sound sensitivity than i have now and like more um not a ton of executive functioning but more capacity for like tolerating stimulation and i was not bedridden at that point like i could I spent most of my time in the house. I couldn't go on like long walks, definitely. Um, but I could like walk uh, downstairs and upstairs 
fine. It wasn't like a very arduous. I could like walk around in the yard a little bit. Um, and um, and I could uh, game, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I kind of like had always had like kind of a contempt for gaming, but I was like, this might be like a long, uncomfortable illness and I need to distract myself. So I sort of got into it a little bit. Um, although it like, could be a little overstimulating for sure. Um, like, so yeah, and then I went back for a second appointment with that doctor in May 2018. Um, and she was like checking out, wanted to stop the antivirals because they hadn't helped. She reran like a lot of immune system labs, and um, she also tested me for like for heart issues, uh, blood pressure issues, and like issues that had to do with postural changes where you're not getting enough blood flow to your uh brain and body when you especially when you stand up or whatever which is really common in this illness but i especially had a lot of signs of it um just like which is linked i think to like the exercise intolerance like it's like not just like i feel tired when but it's like if i stand up like you know my heart's racing kind of deal um and like i'm gonna pass out that um and so like at this point i was starting to get a little bit starting to get a little bit like fed up with the pace of all of this like i really just wanted to be better but she did prescribe like this really simple treatment which helps with quality of life which is um kind of high doses of iv saline which i guess it's not like dehydration exactly oral oral fluids never helped me at all but it's based on someone just discovering that there's really low blood volume in patients with this illness they just don't have enough blood it's not anemia because the proportion of red blood cells to uh, plasma and all the other stuff is normal but they just are missing like at least a liter of blood which is seen in like shock but shock and like sepsis but um so and no one knows like why this is. It's like a down, I think it's probably a downstream problem. You only get temporary relief from treatments that increase the blood volume, but like, um, so I started going for saline infusions at the local hospital um, twice a week. And I was like really surprised because it was like a treatment. I was like saline, like seriously, um, um, they like would really help for like four or five hours, maybe top, which is kind of almost sounds crazy to get 
stuck with a needle um, and maybe risk infection for like five hours of relief twice a week. But it's just like, I don't, it makes an unbelievable difference in mental health to get even mm-hmm. these really temporary boosts in your physical health and feeling like close to normal kind of gives you like an idea of, well, it, you know, it kind of makes you start thinking when I get better instead of if I get better. Like it, it gives you an idea of what it feels like to be healthy because when you lose sight of that, it's kind of like becoming totally, uh, what's the word for not anchored? Uh, I don't know. Unmoored? Unmoored, yeah. I, um, yeah, you become totally unmoored because if you just kind of like get used to living in pain and your body just feeling pain and various kinds of hard to put into words discomfort for like years, it I, it really does make you kind of go insane. And the thing about that is that that's why I feel like the whole concept of hysteria is like really in some ways insidious is because it's like the, there's this self-perpetuating thing where I, I think pain and physical illness untreated and unrecognized often makes people actually basically go insane, become socially weird, I mean, et cetera. And so they're less likely to come across as reliable narrators because they've just been living in like isolation going insane from pain and discomfort years. I don't know. When you were getting the saline treatments, first off, was that something that in your research other people had found to be helpful? Um, And I guess secondly, to what extent would it relieve symptoms? Um, So... I, it's not something that I um, researched initially. Like, I didn't bring it to my doctor. She was the one who initiated it. But after she told me about it and I researched more, I did find that, yeah, it, it is a common treatment for both ME-CFS and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which are often comorbid. Um, and, and I did find the research compelling um when as to how helpful it was um i feel like it basically i wouldn't say it brought me to 100 percent, but it's it, these relative improvements are so hard to like quantify it because it's not like i went out and like would try and push myself really hard after a treatment, but it would be like I would kind of drag myself to the hospital. Like I, I could still walk around a lot. I wasn't bedridden, but it wasn't comfortable to walk around that much, even to just walk up the stairs and be sitting up a lot at the hospital. Some days that would be difficult, but I drag myself there. And then after the first liter and a half, I'd be very like um, 
comfortable walking around, standing up, like not feeling like I was going to pass out at all, just like feeling uh, like my body and brain felt pretty normal. And a lot of, and, and I think cognitive improvements too, which is seems odd from the ceiling or human, but I think it's probably due to like better blood flow um mm-hmm. brain so i would just i would um and it's weird like um i kind of have a a control for this because um a lot of people will say well you know you can get placebo effects or just orphans from the pain of an IV that can trick you into thinking we're having um beneficial effect but i would get the beneficial effects really starting at like after at least a full liter and especially mm-hmm. after a liter and a half which is like an hour later after they so, um, and also later when i was too sick to go out and tried uh getting a nurse to do this on me at home um, they would sometimes just miss my vein and not be able to do the treatment. They get the pain without the saline, and I would just crash a lot just from the sensory overstimulation of like pain. So uh-huh. I think that I don't know. I think it like it felt like it doubled my capacity. Um, physical capacity uh like standing um walking just that mostly i because i also had cognitive issues and fatigue from cognitive things it's not like i would go out and try and test my physical capacity normally i would just like use that time as a window to do like um stuff like write or um like talk to people uh, Essentially, um, yeah, or yeah, listen to music. I mean, we used to have this ritual kind of thing where I would put on the Boy Harsher song Pain. I think it's called Pain. I know the lyrics are like Pain makes the rhythm, makes the rhythm, um, or something. Um, while I was getting the IV in, just to like kind of like subconsciously that first I squeamish with IV subconsciously like trick myself into having no problem with pain almost like turn it into enjoyment instead of um and then I would just like uh I don't know listen to lots of grouper and like a ton of grouper was very comforting to me uh, like over and over sometimes just like the same albums at like every infusion and I mean, I did this, the infusions for like a solid four months. So I had a lot of time to listen to music before I got like sicker. And I also listened to Rilo Kylie, a ton of Rilo Kylie, actually. I forgot who got me into that. Um, I don't remember anyone at Hampshire ever telling me to listen to Rilo Kylie. Um, probably too it's too optimist too optimist uh or 
Hampshire people. I don't know. Um, yeah, most people tell you to listen to, uh, you know, Harsh Noise, Mersbau album or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think it like would sometimes literally hang out with Brian. It's like I feel like I enjoyed making noise more than just like listening to it casually sure yeah um, of course i just go and hang out with brian and he'd play some like either obscure noise or like prog or like metal thing that i was just like not into and just like we'd all kind of sit there in his <laughs> living room in like um i think enfield or something i forget all the mm-hmm. dorms honestly um just kind of being like nice dude um nice yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah what's this one called uh uh, piss fuck machine gun (laughs) yeah oh man (laughs) um but that it's funny because i actually the one thing that is close to noise that i got that i did get really into during this time period um because i found it to be really kind of comforting and ambient is Burzum's first album, I want to say, Philosophem or whatever it's called. Okay. Um, like it kind of, you know, Burzum's like a meme because the, like Bard Vakernis um, murdered people and is like all right or whatever, but yeah, it's actually like really good and I'm not a metal person at all. I mean... I actually like enjoy this conversation. Like I'm, I, l- I like to ramble about music because I don't listen to it that much. Kind of just like remembering it, nostal- like things nostalgically is like uh, enjoyable for me. Um, but yeah, I like I really love that album because it's just like being in a a dark forest, snowy forest or something. It's like metal, but mm-hmm. it's like very much about the ambience and not about like i don't know a lot of metal to me just like almost all of it sounds like whatever the musical equivalent of like wwe wrestling is yeah yeah. (laughs) very affected (laughs) and like aggressive in a very affected way but this was different it was like i don't know just intense like ambient sheets of noise but like also with like vocal melodies buried in it but yeah so i listened to lots of stuff i think i think my staples were like grouper and like maybe some tim hacker and like um uh oh what else i got really into like this some balinese gamelan stuff oh yeah okay cool which is actually kind of similar at least Maybe it's a Tim Hacker. It's like really multi-layered. Um, I think I like would do that and have like daydreams of just like being in like the South Pacific or something. It just seemed like earthy and embodying in a way that I was like really by. Um, but yeah, so I do that. Like li- listen to tons of music, audiobooks. Um, Nietzsche because I was like Nietzsche was is um was a disabled very sickly um 
Intel who like wrote all this stuff about vital vitality to kind of mm-hmm. co- compensate for that, and that seems appropriate. And, yeah. and also because it's more like poetic than most theory, and less like um, intentionally like dense and self-referential. I don't know. I guess I just like aphorisms better than like um, whatever most post-structuralist stuff is. And I was like, you know, maybe if uh, Nietzsche could, uh, you know, handle being a sickly, in pain, um, you know, all this without going insane, and maybe I could put, so I, I don't know, I was kind of, I kind of just like plateaued for a while doing those treatments, which didn't really help my overall disease course, but did mm-hmm. make me feel periodically better and like not go insane and kind of on my parents urging because they were frustrated with the disease course, um, kept going back to this local primary care doctor who would do some of the things that my specialist ordered him to do, but like wasn't really helpful and it was hard to get a read, wasn't really helpful on his own and it was hard to get a read on like how he even felt about any of this. Um, but like my parents just were like, kind of like, we're unequipped to help you research any of this or figure it out. So, you know, you just got to go back to the doc, you know, back to the doctor and say, I need help. I need, <laughs> which it, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't actually really work with the primary care provider, especially. Yeah. I mean, you just, if you do that, they just get annoyed. Like, I mean, he was like, well, you have a specialist. I mean, and then um, I would just go there and I'd be like, yeah, I hate being sick. I'm in pain, but try and say it in a very non-emotive way because it freaks out doctors when you're like, if you're like, I, I don't know, if you're not stoic, they, they like, it's weird. They they seem to like hate that, you know, I don't know. Or maybe it's just doctors dealing with like uh, complex chronic illnesses that they may or may not believe in that are like that. You know, maybe oncologists uh, like to like hand people tissues while they cry, but um, not my PCP anyway. <laughs> um so I would just yeah. be like, kind of like, just go in and be like dead eyed and be like, um, I'm in pain. I don't like being sick. Um, uh, I'm, I've been sick for a while, you know, it's not fun. <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, and nothing would really happen. Um, like I didn't get any real I didn't get any like palliative care or anything. Like I, you know, I kept trying a few things and researching things. Like this is something I'm actually fine about digressing about. That doesn't really be because it's really interesting in terms of tying things together is that um, I 
during the course of just getting these saline infusions at this tiny, like, local hospital in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. I mean, you've been there, so you know how small it is. Yeah, yeah. It's really, like, nowhere. Um, The nurses there were actually, like, very nice. It was the first experience with medical professionals where I didn't feel, I mean, besides the MECFS specialist, which I only saw briefly, where I didn't feel like they kind of hated me. Um, They're like very uh, kind of chill and woke and sympathetic. And um, they said, you know, blah, blah, blah. We have all these HIPAA laws, but there's another patient here coming here for saline infusions for like the same illness or set of illnesses, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like wild numerically or statistically in yeah because maybe one other person in that area of vermont having that illness isn't that wild but most people don't get like diagnosed and treated um so one other person at the same exact hospital getting the same treatment for that chronic illness was wild and they put me in touch with that person who ended up being able to get me a referral to an, a neurologist. Um, I mean, or give me an, a, a neurologist name that I could get a referral to that treated uh, some of these issues. Um, so mostly for like the whole like summer of 2018 or whatever, I, I was fairly stable, but just not making a lot of progress. Um, and um, experimented with like some supplements and uh, stuff like small amounts of thyroid hormone that I thought might help with metabolism or make sense based on my lab work, but nothing really like dramatically turning a corner for me. I mean, one funny thing is that like I went to a naturopath once and it's kind of like, I mean, I'll try most things once and they gave me some like adrenal support formula like to support your adrenal glands or whatever and what i basically learned is that it's like the poor man's corticosteroids it's like okay like that shit actually sort of work in that it does it really does something it's not like homeopathy it definitely has strong effects but it's like they take the adrenal cortex of animals and like dry it and like mix it with some like very stimulating herbs. And then, so you're getting like actual like adrenaline and cortisol from the glands of animals, which is sort of like same therapeutic effect as taking a kind of unknown dose of corticosteroids. Like it's, anti-inflammatory and probably makes you feel more energetic but it's like also i don't know kind of a bizarre treatment that i don't think is the root cause but probably some people do feel really hyped about it and is one reason people like like naturopaths i don't know Mm -hmm. they don't only give them placebos they give them like weird amounts of like actual um drug 
like compounds just in a uh, quote unquote natural form. <laughs> yeah, just some poor badgers, like brain fluids or whatever. That's, yeah. Yeah. That, that's just one step away from like adrenochrome treatment, which yeah. who knows? Not for us. Uh, the adrenochrome but, thing, I mean, is was so funny to me because like one of the first, like I watched um, the the movie of the Hunter S. Thompson book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, when I was like uh, a teenager before I'd done any drugs in my like sheltered uh, rural Vermont existence, just hanging out with like an older friend who was kind of like cool and smoked weed, and we just watched that movie um, and. I, I was like obsessed with they talk about like adrenochrome in the movie it's like in the movie it's like this mythical weird uh dangerous <laughs> drug they experiment with and that was like made in i don't know what like the 90s um mm-hmm. very gilliam version of that and then i was like reading all this QAnon stuff and i'm like adrenochrome like what does that remind me of and I, I go to the movie clips if you look at the movie that the clip of that movie where they where he takes adrenochrome and look at the <laughs> co- the comment section <laughs> right now it's incredible <laughs> oh man oh my god it's like um it's all stuff like hiding in plain sight <laughs> <laughs> like these sickos are hiding in plain sight <laughs> Johnny Depp has been secretly arrested. Uh, <laughs> That's the plan. That's so but I mean, consuming glands of animals is actually like not necessarily always a terrible idea, and has some like um, uh, like historical uh, uh, what's the word? Anyway, it's like people have used uh, like they used to make fish or chicken neck soup to get like some of the thyroid hormone but anyway hormones weren't like my main problem and my point was that they kind of give that shit out indiscriminately um yeah like and i feel like that's like one of the reasons it's a little off topic but that's one of the reasons people trust naturopaths is not just because they give out placebos they give out some shit that'll make you like amped up and it's um they don't they don't solely do placebo treatments um they do they also do they just give you kind of like a weird shit that actually um is drug like um even if it's not specific to treat yeah um yeah like probably they get uh, a lot of them give almost anyone thyroid hormone and that will make you amped up but um anyway i i so like i experimented a little with like low doses of thyroid hormone it helped a little bit i felt like this wasn't my main problem and i was just kind of hitting a wall and then sort of uh i think it was yeah, November of 2018, and I'd been doing these infusions and really kind of getting nowhere, but um, at least getting some relief for a while. I got like 
sort of suddenly dramatically more sick. It, it's hard to remember in retrospect. It might have been like sort of like I had a bad crash. I almost thought it was just from activity, but also like I had a flu or something at the same time, or could have just been like any kind of infection. And I, um, I got, I became basically entirely bedridden in like a week. This is why the idea that like this is at all deconditioning is like crazy to me. It is like I went from like walking around to like bedridden in like almost overnight, not quite overnight, like really quickly. It was like something changed that wasn't, I wasn't doing enough activity. It was like the other way around. And this is when I started getting like more intense, like neurological symptoms that are probably not even typical MECFS symptoms or not like everyone has them. And they're like really concerning. I got like my neck felt like too weak to hold up my head kind of suddenly. Um, uh, I got like intense positional vertigo. Like um, when I would sit up, even I would just I would just have like horrible vertigo um, at all when I sat up. I get got really intense like base of the skull headaches. Like I was just like screaming in pain. Before that, I had plenty of like constant low grade pain, muscle pain from crashing or exerting, but nothing like this. It was just like I was literally like screaming out loud for know hours taking like the maximum dose of aspirin and Tylenol you know stuff like that and um and having like really intense um just like fast heart rate and high blood pressure like for long periods of time but especially like worsening with any exertion like if I like I, I kind of went to the point very suddenly where if I like crawled to the bathroom and back my heart rate would be like insanely elevated for like an hour afterwards like so I kind of and I also got like a a lot more sound and light sensitivity this is kind of when it started in like November Mm -hmm. November of 2018 and um really and so I since my house isn't wheelchair accessible for one thing I like basically had to stop going to infusions even though they're one of the only things that i thought might help and they had no idea about other treatments and i just kind of by luck stumbled on um a a patient narrative of someone who'd had this structural neurological issue that um basically had all the exact same symptoms I was going through, like not just the typical MECFS symptoms of fatigue and crashing in response to exertion, but also like the positional vertigo, the neck weakness, the intense uh, headaches, all of that. And, um, and he, his story was like really intense. He'd, actually spent he spent a ton of his bedridden time researching until he figured out that he might have 
disconnected tissue problem causing his skull to sink down and compress his brainstem. And that, and he tried to get like tons of doctors to take that seriously and none would. And then he became hospitalized, like basically almost totally unable to move for like, I think half a year. Like a, Jesus Christ. Maybe it was a third of a year. It was like, it was definitely over a couple months. And they basically, the hospital didn't even want him there. They tried to kick him out, but he would just like basically pass out or whatever. Every time they, they tried to get him up into a chair to leave. And, you know, they tried to say he was crazy, but then they called in a psych consult. And the psych consult said he's not. And finally, and he was just, you know, asking them to test for what he thought it was from his research for craniocervical instability. And they wouldn't until finally they called like the head of neurosurgery um, down. And where was this? This was in Los Angeles, in Cedar Sinai, okay. I think, actually. Um, so, like a major medical center, not some. Yeah, a good, a good hospital. Um, And the head of neurosurgery um, just did the imaging and actually within days put him in a halo brace, which is like an intermediate measure. And most people with this wouldn't have this, but this was like he couldn't get out of the hospital without treatment and they weren't going to do neurosurgery right away. So... Mm -hmm the head of neurosurgery actually diagnosed him there and got him a halo brace, which improved symptoms a lot. It basically like you get screws in your skull and it lifts up your uh, skull after, yeah, after months just languishing there. And, um, and once he adjusted the halo and everything, it actually, relieve all of his MECFS symptoms. Like he was able to exert himself normally, like a do PT mm-hmm. without crashing, hold conversations without crashing. And then he got um, a fusion surgery, a different neurosurgeon, and basically went into full remission. Um, so I, I read that story and I, like, I was like, Full remission stories are like really rare in MECFS communities. They're more like, there are a lot that are like, this treatment helped me somewhat. Or, um, but full remission stories that don't kind of smell like total bullshit, like that aren't pushed by anonymously by some like supplement seller or something, are very rare. Um, but I didn't want to get my hopes up. Um, really, but I was bedridden and had like no ideas from other doctors of what to do. Like my primary care doctor just said, exercise, you know, until you're not bedridden. Um, <laughs> and yeah, um, and I asked both my primary care doctor and MECFS doctor to look at the story and order cervical MRI, um, actually specifically an upright cervical MRI with 
flexion and extension views where you bend bend your head forward and back in addition to the usual. Look for essentially this uh, like kinking or bending of the brainstem that happens when you have lax ligaments and then um, the skull dropping down and also one of the um, spinal vertebrae bending backwards brainstem. Anyway, um, both my MACFS doctor and primary care provider flat out refused to do that, order the MRIs. Um, and um, like the MECFS doctor at least gave me a couple of sort of like palliative meds, um, but she was very conservative about like any further diagnostic stuff. I don't know if she didn't want to do like paperwork or insurance or whatever, um, but I was really desperate. And I just remember that I had a family friend who's a nurse practitioner um, and I researched independent upright MRI centers and found one in Albany and their pricing is actually way better than you would think. Um, looking at your insurance bills for MRIs, it was like $600. Um, so I, I crowdfunded for that money and I asked my family friend who's a nurse practitioner to order an upright MRI for me. Like she couldn't deal with insurance, but she could just write an order that simple. Mm -hmm. And um, got it done, I think around January of 2019. Like I, um, it was an ordeal to get out, but like, uh, you know, with some meds and help getting down the stairs and stuff um you could do it and i got sort of like cautious maybe presumed diagnostic i, I just sent it directly to one of the neurosurgeons who's like an expert dealing with this issue especially in patients with active tissue disorders like mostly this issue craniocervical instability only occurs or it's mostly known to occur in patients with head trauma and I had had no head trauma, but it is now being known to occur in patients with like a lot of connective tissue disorders and also post-infectious uh, illnesses. So there's theories that it could be like an infection damages the ligaments. So it's like, a kind of routine surgery, but also only a few neurosurgeons in the country that deal with non-traumatic versions of this issue and will diagnose people without, or look at imaging without them having had head trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I sent the imaging to this neurosurgeon and, um, he said the next diagnostic step was manual traction with the physical therapist and keep a diary of the results and then send them back. Like basically just they pull on your head essentially. 
I mean, it requires a little more physical finesse, but that's like the mechanics of it. Um, I was like very sick and low in spirits, but I was kind of having that uh, idea of possible, like possible diagnostic hope and clarity. Um, it, it was just like a deluge of kind of complex things going on that was difficult for me to navigate. So it's kind of almost difficult to tell it all as like one narrative that there were also some other things that I think in retrospect were big clues that at the time I was starting to notice, like I felt like way worse inside the house, in my, inside my house. I was starting to have like random, like rash kind of stuff and like as well as like intense air hunger inside the house and intense what hunger air air hunger okay um just like felt worse breathing and it's something i kind of pushed to the side as an observation because i had always felt like it seemed like there's not a lot of there wasn't a lot of hard scientific evidence for like uh, toxic mold illness or something, or it, it just seemed less like there was less of a scientific veneer among like people talking about it, even if that's unjustified. It it just seemed that way, and but I did kind of think like it is like I do feel intensely different inside versus outside, I, and noticed that at the same time as I was investigating um, this neurological structural issue that was totally different. Um, but so I, I kind of like the physical therapy and all of that, arranging a home physical therapist that could do this essentially diagnostic thing. I mean, it was therapeutic and diagnostic it kind of all took a while. So um in short, I didn't actually get done with doing like a, a journal of traction, um, et cetera, with the physical therapist until I think April or so. And then I got a video appointment with a neurosurgeon to go over the results of that and my imaging um, in June. And also sent the imaging to another specialist neurosurgeon. And um, so in June, I got formally diagnosed with craniocervical instability by this neurosurgeon. Basically, based on the measurements on my MRI and also the response to traction, um, where I get relief especially from the headaches and like head pressure, vertigo from traction. Um, and, and that really felt like insanely vindicating. Like ME-CFS, mm. I know it's like a real syndrome and I was sure that there's a maybe common underlying cause but it's not something that you can show someone on an MRI and be like, um, you know, actually seriously 
killed. This is like, a, it's it's a syndrome. It's not an illness with an as of yet identified biomarker or specific MRI signs. You know, so this was yeah. vindicating in a different way. And I also thought, you know, once this happens, I I won't ever get treated badly by a doctor again. <laughs> and, it, and it was probably pretty naive, but I was like, well, goddamn, my primary care providers can feel pretty fucking stupid for not ordering that MRI. He's going to probably, you know, start crying and apologize or something, <laughs> which um, is not what happened, but... Or, you know, that that uh, ex-friend from Hampshire that I heard talk, uh, you know, through the grapevine was, like, essentially saying I was, like, a mentally ill scammer. Um, we'll feel really bad, you know, because this is a serious thing. Like, how it's brainstem compression on a fucking MRI. And I got that diagnosis, and the neurosurgeon, who's very blunt, he's a he's a funny guy. He's like um, northern Italian, and I mean, he's in New York, but he's like got a very kind of blunt um, manner, almost like the stereotypical like uh, intense detective TV doctor who's very blunt and you know wisecracking or whatever but mm -hmm. he was like um you know i'm not sure if this is your main problem but you certainly meet the criteria for this and we're willing to do further in-person testing that will then lead to if you um get certain results from that testing that will then offer you surgery um uh, I think it was vague, but then in following up, meant basically if you come to New York and do this testing, you could, which involves um, invasive traction, you and you um, pass that testing and the pre-surgical screening, you will be offered surgery basically like within the next few days or next week. So it's kind of like a huge decision to think about mm -hmm. um but at the same time yeah and now i'm talking essentially like summer 2019 at the same time over that whole past spring i was like starting to think that starting to read up on like the people who had these environmental kind of semi-allergic responses to um uh usually mold although mold is kind of like a shorthand in this context but it's the best shorthand i have and noted you know noticing that i felt way worse inside and so i thought i just got this neurosurgical diagnosis um, 
and I could have surgery maybe any time. I want to try like a change of environment just as a kind of, you know, it would be good to try something less invasive before surgery. I didn't expect it to fix the structural issue. Like I didn't expect to regrow my ligaments proper, properly, but I was just like, so had so much like brain fog and kind of intense, um, delirium and confusion that was made worse by, I thought being inside my house that I, I thought, you know, what do I have to lose by trying a kind of an intense change of environment? And that's when I, and so even though I was essentially bedridden at that point and traveling would be difficult, we uh, got a used minivan and like just put a mattress in the back so I could travel totally lying down. Um, and even like a strap system so I could be like kind of strapped down, not like sliding around. Mm -hmm. And um, my sister and I left uh, Vermont basically right away based on this idea that as an experiment, you go to a really pristine uh, like wilderness place and Um, try and take, for the sake of a controlled experiment, try and take as few of your possessions as possible, stay in this place, see if you notice reactions. And part of the experiment usually is to return home after that, see if you react um, worse once you've been away, like sort of like how with celiac, you're supposed to try like an elimination diet or something. You, you're you supposed to try not eating wheat for a while and reintroducing mm -hmm. it to see if it's the variable. Sort of like that, but for your environment. Um, yeah. But like we... And also all of the reading I had done on this environmental stuff, um, it it seemed clear that it wasn't just about like dry versus wet. Although a lot of people talked about going to the desert is like, people seem to react to, to molds that grow in modern buildings and also to stuff in the outdoor air in essentially like not solely, but usually developed or civilized areas. Like, um, so despite it not being the desert, we stopped in the south in um, Anandoah National Forest in Virginia as like a first stop. Um, mm -hmm. And I just felt like so much insanely better there. I, I Like my neck issues didn't go away. I still needed to wear a brace, but I, I think I like went from, you know, when we're when we drove up from like these shitty Virginia suburbs or whatever up to like Shenandoah National Park and just like open the car windows, I like went from having this kind of you know, an episode of almost like 
near paralysis where I would have trouble speaking or um, moving at all, which I was starting to get at home a lot. Um, it scared me to just like sitting up and talking a lot. And then within like lots of hours of just lying outside and the grass um, would it eventually started like walking some without much discomfort or crashing. Um, mm -hmm. And there's also just this kind of immediate intuitive feeling of the air feeling good to breathe, like no air hunger, just like, you, you know, um, when people are like, it, I don't know, there are probably colloquialisms for like when people say that air just feels or smells fresh or something sure it's yeah. sort of intangible like organ energy or something um yeah it it was like that it was just like i was like whoa um but it wasn't like it wasn't like i immediately went to a hundred percent capacity at all and i think probably part of that is like how sick I got and how I had actual like not just inflammation but actual structural damage to my body at this point like from talking to other people who've done this at different points in their lives I feel pretty confident that that there's a stage of this illness where you have inflammation maybe in your neck and brain stem area but it hasn't caused structural damage yet and those people can sometimes just fully recover with a change of environment and then there's a stage where you might have actual permanent damage to your ligaments in addition to inflammation and, and this is sort of conjecture there's some research but it's just, you know, talk to hundreds of people with this illness and it seems like different stages and like some people with mild or moderate illness just really make full recoveries with an environmental change. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't really happen so easily for severe illness. Um, and it, Again, like I wasn't counting on it to happen. It's kind of just an experiment, and it was an experiment that kind of turned into a very open-ended experiment because it kind of kept working somewhat, even if not curing me. So it's it's kind of hard to give up on something that is making you feel somewhat better, even if it's not progressing to full remission.